Hello and welcome to the i3 podcast. My name is Wouter Klein and I'm the Director of Content for the Investment Innovation Institute. For more information about our educational forums for institutional investors, please visit our website at www.i3-invest.com. There you can also subscribe to our complimentary newsletter, i3 Insights in which we discuss investment strategy and asset allocation questions with asset owners around the world. Now, as you all know, we love our disclaimers in this industry, so here's ours. This recording is for educational purposes only. It does not constitute financial advice. Please enjoy the show. Welcome to the i3 podcast. I'm here today with Joel Clapham, who is the founder and chief mental health champ at Hearten Up. Joel, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. It's a, it's a real treat to be with you. It's, uh, it's nice to see your face again, even if it is over on over video. Yes, it's the, the way of these days, uh, I think. So today we're going to do something a little bit different. Normally we talk about investments, uh, investment strategy, asset allocation. But today we're going to talk about mental health. And um, I thought, you know, it's an important topic in most times, but especially today with the um, the pandemic going on and people facing lockups, um, I think it's uh, especially important to remind mm. people of, of, of the issues around this and, and also this, um, some of the tips on how you can improve mental health. So I picked you because uh, you know the industry very well and I've followed your journey for, for, for a while. So I was very interested in sort of how you have been uh, experiencing uh, your journey in mental health. Mm-hmm. But maybe before we dive into that, can you explain to me a little bit about um, how you got started in the super innovation industry? You were for a, a long time a marketing and communication specialist with Media Super, Telstra Super, Lucrif. Can you tell me a little bit about how you got started? Yeah, sure. Absolutely. Uh, I started off as um, in the insurance industry at the Insurance Institute. And I was working there in the, the call center, uh, doing member and student services. And after a little while, a marketing role came up and I was studying professional writing and creative writing at uni part-time while I was uh, while I was working there. It was my second go at uni. I dropped out after three years, well, three years of present time or enrollment time, but 18 months of coursework being completed because I spent a lot of time at the uni bar. Uh, so I was working at the Insurance Institute and a marketing role came up and uh, I was really interested in that. It was an entry-level role, and so I, I put myself forward and went through the process and was really fortunate and grateful to be given the opportunity uh, to start a career in marketing and comms, uh, which was, you know, writing is something that I've always done ever since I was a, a little kid. So uh, that was my first marketing role, and I spent about two years there and sort of felt that I'd learned as much as I could uh, in you know, the, the structure and the environment uh, that I was in at the time. And so I was looking around for other opportunities and the role at Lucrif came up. And what really appealed to me about uh, the role at Lucrif was the story of the, of the fund being one of the very first profit to members or industry super funds. I'm a, I'm a bit of a, a bleeding heart and a, a champion of the underdogs uh, at, you know, at my <laughs> core. So the idea of an organisation that did something at the time that was really quite unique 
uh, and had a great story to tell. I thought that was, uh, and it, you know, it really was a real privilege to to work with that organisation and tell that story for a couple of years. And then I just progressed on through and worked my butt off and uh, was fortunate enough to be offered some more opportunities. You, you started with Lucrative and then I think you went to Telstra Super, Media Super. Mm-hmm. So you, you've, you've been in these communication roles, uh, marketing roles. Can you tell me a little bit about what some of the things you really enjoyed uh, from the time and from those roles? I'd love to, yeah. Uh, I love the time that I spent at Lucrative. Uh, as I said, it's a great story to tell. Really outside-the-box thinking people uh, led by the CEO at the time I was there, Greg Sword, uh, who was instrumental in setting up the organisation. Uh, I was looking for more creativity in marketing and comms uh, and a little bit more of a, a challenge. Uh, at that particular point in time. And the role at Telstra Super was the the perfect opportunity for me uh, at the time that, um, you know, I applied for and was offered that role. And that was because we had a a mandate to refreshen or freshen up all of our communications and really try some creative and different sort of engagement campaigns. Martin Crow was the CEO at the time, who's who's always been a really good person to me. And our, uh, our mandate there was to try and do things a little bit differently and not just report on what was going on and what the super fund was doing, but to really try and get our members to uh, engage and connect and take more of an interest in their future and their retirement. So I, I loved that challenge and I worked with a great bunch of people uh, at, the, at Telstra Super, loved my time there. I was there for about four years, Yep, did a whole bunch of different exciting things and, uh, you know, received some good hat tips. Uh, and then was looking to take on a little bit more responsibility and really take a, a big le- uh, step forward in my career. And the opportunity came up at Media Super, and with you know a stakeholder base that's in the creative industries, in the print industries, uh, as someone who's always been a writer and um, enjoyed story, that was a, a real blessing and probably the perfect opportunity for me on paper to spend time in those industries and working for and with. Uh, people of that particular background and bent. That was um, that was a real treat, and I loved uh, loved my t- most of my time there. It was really really exciting. Yeah, yeah, and I think uh, I've seen you have uh, won multiple awards in that space as well. But I think during that time with Media Super, it was around I think 2016. It's also a period where I think you described it as a, a perfect storm hit you. Mm-hmm. Can you tell me a little bit how that happened, how that unfolded? Absolutely. Very happy to. Uh, Mid-2016 was when I fell apart and had a breakdown. Uh, I can see in hindsight that that had been building up for probably a couple of years. Mm -hmm. And um, there are a bunch of different reasons or things that contributed to that and to me getting to that particular point. Uh, I was working really, really hard, really long hours, was traveling a lot. Um, So there was a, you know, a fatigue and a burnout component to that. My personal life was in a bit of turmoil at the time. My marriage, which has ended in 2016 by mutual decision and we're both much happier for having made that decision. So it's not been, um, it's not been a, you know, a hugely negative thing uh, on the main or long-term. But so I had that going on in the background as well. And I wasn't taking great care of my mental health. I was, I was working too hard. Uh, And a lot of that is my own doing um, because I started to measure my worth and my sense of who I was and my value as a person by professional success. And so that became the way that I, I viewed myself and my, um, my value to the world. Uh, I've since learned or 
you know, change my priorities and it's uh, by other means that I, I evaluate that now. But at the time, uh, I was just striving to, uh, to work harder, do more uh, good things and keep getting more and new opportunities and I, I burnt out. Uh, collapsed. Yeah, I think you know. There's there's always multiple aspects to to uh, mental health, but I think what you described there is that you know you work long days, you spend a lot of time on the road, and as you said, um, at the same time you you're getting sort of this idea of uh, your identity being linked to to mm-hmm. the role. Um, how much have you seen that around you while you were in the superannuation industry, where? And I think also in the financial services industry in general, where people work very hard to get to certain positions, but maybe don't always take the time where they want to be, where they want to get to. Yeah, I saw a lot of that. Uh, You know, I was a part of it, so I'm not casting aspersions on anybody. Yeah, we see a lot of that. And I think particularly, you know, those of us who push ourselves to reach, you know, middle management levels or senior management levels, there's always a real connection and uh, evaluation of our success and value as a person to what we achieve professionally. Uh, and I think that's pretty natural to a point because where we spend the majority of our time is at work. And so if that's going well, we feel as though our life is going well. And when it's challenging or when it's difficult, um, you know, our, our sense of self-worth takes a hit as well. I think it's pretty uh, numerically normal for people to um to correlate their own sense of well-being with how they're going in their professional career yeah uh, but yeah i was certainly beholden to that were you aware of it at that time that 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 what was going on that you were you know uh putting so much worth into your job i was a little bit aware but i didn't have full visibility of the impact that it was having on me as a person yeah my own sense of of well-being and personal health so yeah i had some insight into it and i knew that with every new success i was getting more and more positive but at the same time to achieve those and bigger levels of success i was pushing myself even harder sleeping less doing less for my physical and mental health and everything just sort of snowballed to a point of um you know to a real crisis point as it was so when did you sort of realize that you had to do something about it or or you know when when did it became too much there's probably a couple of points. In mid-2015, uh, I gave up drinking alcohol. Uh, and the reason I did was because it had, um, you know, I'm not a, a drink every day kind of alcoholic, but when I did drink, I really enjoyed not feeling as loathsome towards myself as I would day to day. And so I became uh, reliant on on alcohol as a, a stimulus, I guess, to, to feeling less frustrated with myself. Uh, so mid-2015, kind of got to the point where I realised that that was having a, a negative impact on me as a person, but, um, you know, it was starting to impact the people around me. So I stopped drinking alcohol then, and I think at the time I was really quite proud of myself because it was, you know, fortunately for me, not difficult to stop drinking. However, what I didn't realise was that that wasn't going to be enough but that I needed to do some work on myself and I needed to make some other lifestyle changes as well. So taking that one step was good, but I didn't take any further steps. And so I think I just sort of hovered uh, for about 12 months. And then mid-2016, everything did sort of happen really quickly in terms of where I was and things changing very rapidly. My former wife and I had, um, you know, we went to to marriage counselling and uh, we made a decision together that we felt uh, we 
grown apart to the point where it would be healthier and happier for us to no longer be together. Uh, and I'm certainly much happier for that decision. And without putting words in my former wife's mouth, I'm, I'm pretty confident that she's a lot happier too, which is great because that means that our kids are, are living in you know happier home environments. Uh, but so that decision was uh, was made by the two of us. And I also reached a bit of a, I guess, a crossroads in how I was valuing my um, my contribution to the world and how happy I felt with that. And the work that I was doing no longer felt enough to make me mm. feel as though I was, was, you know, a good person and doing good things. So I uh, took some time off work, uh, which my GP pretty much made me do because I was, you know, a mess essentially I was a you know your classic hot mess and uh, my GP said let's take away one of those um, pressure points for you so that you can focus on the other so work was parked initially for a month while I moved out of the marital home and and tried to adjust to the change in my personal life and then um, that leave was then extended by another month and then another month and um, you know, I had some discussions and came to the realization that I I didn't want to return to what I was doing. So I made the decision to resign and collapsed and did the started doing the work I needed to do on myself. Can you tell me a little bit about that, that work, about uh, how you try to sort of get back up? Love to. Uh, there's a whole bunch of different things and a whole bunch of stumbling and falling over and getting back up again. There's no linear path to mental health recovery. It's not a pleasant, gradual uh, ascent back to full health. I had. Um, I had some, you know, some experiences and some um, events happen in my my life while I was growing up that I can see now I hadn't really dealt with. My parents separated when I was eleven, uh, and you know, loads of people have parents who've um, who've split up and divorced and all that sort of thing. And mine isn't a tale of pity; it's more just sharing with you the challenges. So my parents split up when I was eleven. Um, my dad moved away, and then he then uh, took his own life when I was sixteen, and that had a, a massive impact on me. Uh, and I can see that I was missing him and mourning him, but I hadn't constructively grieved his passing and the method of his passing. I um I didn't really know how to do that. And so that kind of was just a, a bit of a, a grey shadow or a dark shadow on my shoulder for about 20 years, as it turned out. And so when I did collapse myself mid-2016 and broke down and fell apart, I was at the point where I no longer wanted to feel as awful as I felt. And I had a bit of a light bulb moment where I, I realized that I was probably heading down the same path as, as my dad. And that terrified me because I didn't want to do to my children um, what his death and the manner of his death had done to me. Yeah. So I decided, um, I made a really active and conscious decision that if I wanted the opposite outcome of my dad, which you know is to stay alive and become happy again, hopefully one day, as I am now, uh, that I was going to take the opposite steps to him. And so I decided to be really um, open about my struggles and to not be embarrassed or ashamed of um, you know my human frailties. And I, um, I drew on the support of a, a whole bunch of different people, professionals and personal supports, uh, GP, psychologist, psychiatrist. I was seeing these people once a week for a good six to 12 months because that's the point I was at and what I needed. 
And um, I, what I learned was that just by letting myself feel what I felt and working through it uh, through therapy and making small gradual changes, I was making small gradual progress in terms of how I felt about myself. And slowly over a period of a few years, um, I was able to lift my eyes from staring at the floor and begin to see a bit of a future for myself. And that got really exciting. And um, yeah, it's been great to get to that point where I feel really positive about the future and I have, you know, hopes and dreams that extend beyond a, a one and two year horizon. And um, you know, I'm now sort of trying to picture what I might do in my 70s and 80s should I make it that far. And Excellent. Yeah, it's really cool to get to that point. Yeah. So you made a conscious choice to to really open up and tell people about your, your story. Do you think that making that decision, was that sort of as a reaction to what you saw around you where it wasn't discussed a lot and where there is still some stigma around these type of issues? Look, I'd like to say that it was and that I was making a real conscious decision to try and challenge stigma. But if I'm perfectly honest with you, I just needed to get it off my chest and I needed to get it out. It felt like a big dark secret that I was continuing to hold to myself and that was sort of corroding me from the inside. And I needed to get it out beyond the professional supports that I had. Uh, and there was a more practical level for my, I guess, coming out as someone who was really struggling with their mental health at the time. And that was that I was still getting calls and emails from people I was working with or had known uh, talking about work stuff, talking about industry stuff. And I couldn't take those calls or emails anymore. And I just wanted to do something to try and give people a heads up that I needed a bit of a break. Yep. And so I made the decision to post on LinkedIn and say, hey, I'm really struggling with my mental health. I'm taking some time out. I'm not asking for pity. I just want to let you know where I am. And hopefully, you know, this might help somebody else feel a little bit less alone as well. And that actually, that sounds really noble, but to, as I said, to be honest, it, it wasn't entirely. Uh, I just wanted a break. And um, from that, I was really touched at, at how many positive responses I got from people and you know, some private correspondence with a whole bunch of people in our industry that said that they had had similar experiences uh, but chosen to keep it to themselves. Uh, and it was quite surprising to me, the people and the roles that they had uh, that were really identifying with what I was going through and and sharing that with me. And I'm really grateful for that trust. And I've never outed anybody else because they're not my stories to tell. But um, mm. I felt a lot better from that because I realized that I was far from as, as alone as I was feeling. Yeah, it's interesting because I think there's also when people hear about friends or family struggling with mental health i think there's also not just that there is a stigma around it but there's a sort of an unease for people to talk about they're not sure knowing what to do and i did a previous podcast uh with rob pruge who, who set up prop i asked him so so what should you do and he said you know just ask people <laughs> and you know yeah. just address it are you feeling down are you you know do you have suicidal thoughts and i was really initially taken back back Mm. Can you say that? Can you ask that? And he says, yes, you should. Do you have the same feeling? Do you think that maybe you being open, maybe that has taken some um, of the awkwardness away because people know what's going on? Uh, look, I hope so. I hope that um, by me being open, other people feel less alone and a little bit more confident and hopeful that if they also talk with other people, whether it's a small circle or trusted person, uh, that they might be able to, to move forward as well. I completely agree with the point that it is 
more than okay. In fact, it, it's really encouraged that if we're talking with someone uh, and just being a good friend, if they are, you know, showing strong signs of depression and despondency and saying things along the lines of they're not certain about their future, um, it is really a really positive thing to ask them directly and respectfully if they've had thoughts of, uh, of ending their own life. And it is contrary to what, um, what was common thought up until even a few years ago. There was a piece of research done by Beyond Blue and a whole bunch of other organisations in 2018, uh, which looked at whether people felt that being asked directly and respectfully about suicidal thoughts was a positive or a negative thing. And the, the evidence base that came out of that research was that it wasn't putting the idea of suicide in people's heads because it was already there. Yeah. But asking the question of them gave them the strong sense that you are comfortable having a discussion about a taboo, a previously taboo topic with them and that they felt more open about it. So, um, yeah, I completely agree with that comment about just being open and human. Yeah, and you've called your organisation Harden Up, which is <laughs> obviously a play on words, mm -hmm. uh, um, referencing Harden Up as being opposed to that. Why, why did you chose that? And, and do you think that there is still this whole issue with sort of views of masculinity and that you can't be uh, perceived to be weak and that sort of thing? Is that a reference to that? Yeah, it's a reference to um, yeah to Harden Up. Obviously, it's a play on on words. You know, and I was guilty of this as well. I can recall specific times in my my life in previous years where um, I've said to myself or thought about other people, you just need to have a glass of concrete and harden the F up. Come on, you know, yeah. just get on with it. And it wasn't until I fell apart and broke down that I realised how destructive that was because what we're doing when we say to ourselves or other people, you just need to harden up, what we're doing is basically saying how you feel is invalid and you need to get over yourself. And so when I did make that decision to live a life of, you know, being an open, uh, stumbling, bumbling human that still have still have hopes and wants to evolve and all that sort of stuff, when I did that, make that decision, I, also, I used hearten up as a bit of a personal mantra for myself. Uh, I didn't want to harden up because it had been dangerous and destructive for me. And so I wanted to hearten up and acknowledge how I was feeling, work through all of those emotions and uh, mental health problems. And hopefully, and I have uh, come out the other side. So hearten up became a way of life for me. And when I was setting up my own entity uh, or my own venture, uh, I thought, what better uh, name to give that organization that something uh, than something that has proved really positive and constructive for me. So um yeah, and I also, you know, I like the idea that a business name can also give people pause for thought. You know, as a, a marketer by trade, it's one subtle way <laughs> to try and leave your brand on someone's um, mind for an extra second or two. So that's where that came from. Yeah. In terms of masculinity, uh, wow, what a minefield. Um, I love being a, a really open guy who talks about his feelings, who every Sunday night has a, a massive bubble bath with magnesium flakes a glass of non-alcoholic wine and I watch a British murder mystery on my iPad in the bath. Um, I love being the sort of guy who no longer feels threatened or intimidated by the alpha male and who is open about his feelings and doesn't feel ashamed or embarrassed about that. And I'm happier for that. Uh, I know that that sort of 
approach to life might not necessarily be for everyone, uh, but it's what's kept me here and what really makes me happy. Uh, so that's just a personal perspective for me. But I think in looking, you know, looking back at my dad and and looking at me, the decision to be open and vulnerable uh, is the key reason why I'm here and he's not. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it also just acknowledges, you know, the the fact that there's multiple aspects to a person's uh, personality, to, a, to mm. their a character. It's uh, maybe they are um, tough in some uh, aspects and, and very open and warm in other aspects. And those yeah. two things can live together. Uh, it was actually funny because um, I, I saw on your LinkedIn feed at one stage that um, you were taking up uh, Thai boxing. And, uh, <laughs> so, I thought, well, that's the sort of diametrically opposed to it. But I'm I'm a big fan of Thai boxing myself. I uh, trained just down the street while I used to before the lockdown. Yeah, nice. So it's it's interesting to see those different parts to to you know a person's uh, a personality. Yeah. Um, so how did you get into that? Uh, well, it's just a recent discovery for me. Um, I'm, I've always been blessed with a sort of a pear-shaped body. Uh, I'm a, a chubby by nature ginger from country Victoria. So fitness is not my natural habitat. And I, over summer, watched Cobra Kai on Netflix oh, yeah, yeah. and loved the idea of learning something that would make me, uh, you know, hopefully feel a little bit, um, a little bit more confident if I ever ended up in a scrape. Not in a food court with teenagers because that's just a fantasy TV narrative. But <laughs> I thought, what? How good would that be? Just to have a few extra skills if I ever needed them. And I've also been like a lot of people over the last year and a half. Also been feeling a little bit disconnected and isolated. And so um, I looked into group training and found a place near me that has um, a great philosophy on being in a group and setting personal challenges. You know, and I've been to been there a whole bunch of times when it's not been locked down and um the first time i yeah it was it was pretty taxing i was probably the color of a beetroot i looked sunburnt after that first session but um yeah loved it loved the adrenaline rush loved the sense of pride that comes from exhaustion and pushing yourself beyond what you thought was possible you, you mentioned that uh, uh connectivity that that was important to, to to the decision to do this group training you know with this lockdown like I'm locked down with three kids and my wife and it's like busy and chaos. Yeah. But for some people, um, if you live by yourself, it can be pretty isolating. Yeah. Um, how, how do you, do you have any tips on dealing with that or, or how do you deal with it yourself? Uh, yeah, I've certainly got some tips, but um, yeah, I'm just like anybody who, you know, I live alone uh, two thirds of the time. My kids spend about a third of their time with me. So uh, I do have, the majority of my time on my own, but I'm really lucky to have um, have my kids when I do, and so that connection is is wonderful, and I really enjoy, you know, not only being a dad but having their company. But without sounding like you know a toss of waffling on, what I've found really positive for me is setting myself a few goals each day that are related to connection. So I try and have one genuine, either in person or phone or video call conversation with another person each day. Uh, and if, you know, some days that might be having a slightly extended chat with the person serving me at the supermarket, but that's, I've come to realize the value of small talk. I used to really not like it, but now it's, I've realized just how valuable it is for connection. Even if it's just talking about the weather, just having a conversation with someone, we get, we do get a, a kick from that. 
the other thing I've found really quite useful and uh, really amazing is mid last year, uh, a friend suggested that we look into joining um, a group called the men's table, which started in Sydney about 10 years ago. And the two guys who set that up wanted to create an environment where it's up to about a dozen guys get together once a month, share a meal and just chat about what's going on uh, in your life at that particular point in time. And what is really valuable for me is that there's a strong commitment to not stepping in and trying to save or fix each other, but it's just giving each other the space to share how you're feeling and what's going on. And so we, we got that going uh, with, you know, with the support of the two founders in Melbourne last year on Zoom initially during Melbourne's 13-week, four-week, six-week lockdown yep. and um, found it really amazing just to get together with a bunch of other men and talk about whatever was going on for us, whether it's frustrating or positive or constructive or not, and just have other people sit around and, and listen and acknowledge that your feelings are okay. Uh, and that's been a, a great thing for me. The other things that I've found that work really well, particularly in isolation when you're on your own or you might have to isolate for uh, 14 days, which I've never had to do, but uh, you know, been that stretch of time on my own just because of the way it's worked out, um, is I try and set myself three things to do each day just to mark time and I make two of those things enjoyable. So one of them is usually not enjoyable, uh, which might be folding the washing, doing the ironing, <laughs> mopping the floor, all of those things that need to be done, but you put off. Uh, and the other two things I make enjoyable, and that might be spend an hour reading a book, uh, or it might be uh, spending an hour out in the garden, which used to be something I hated, but apparently I'm turning into my mother. So I quite enjoy gardening these days. <laughs> well, I have to say uh, myself reaching sort of middle age that I'm suddenly starting to see all the, the, the flowers and trees around me that I've never really <laughs> paid attention to before, but uh, I'm surrounded by lots of wattle trees. And oh, it's yeah. been quite magnificent this season. So uh, walking around, I'm like, oh, I must be getting to the middle age stage where suddenly <laughs> this is opening up for me. <laughs> there's, something, um, there's something in that, I reckon. Uh, that when I was working at Telstra Super, um, the CEO, Martin Crow was a really, really, really good person to me. And I was able to be open with him about, um, you know, some struggles I had at the time. And um, during one of our one-on-one catch-ups, they were always impromptu and, and it was always free from work and just two people having a chat. One thing he said to me was, Joel, you need to stop and smell the roses. The roses smell better than what you think. And at the time, like this is 10 years ago, at the time I thought, yeah, okay, that's what someone of your age might say, but I'm not going to go around smelling roses. Now, when I'm out walking my dogs, if I walk past a garden, it's amazing. I'll stop and look at it for a minute and don't care if I look like an old fuddy-duddy. It's, um, there's something in ageing and, and learning to care less about what other people think. <laughs> Certainly. And smelling what else is pretty good too. Absolutely. I even went to the stage where, um, I don't know if you remember, but at the, after the worst of the bushfires, they discovered in the Blue Mountains this patch of pink flannel flowers that mm. only really show up after really heavy bushfires. And I think the last time they were up was 64 years before that. So I went down and tried to find them. And there was actually so many of them, you didn't really have to look hard. Yeah, wow. It was quite a magnificent sight. Yeah. So it was quite interesting. How did you feel when you saw them? Well, it's quite amazing. You kind of have the idea that you're really... 
a, a witness of like a miracle. Yeah. You know, if, if they grow, come up every year, then okay. But this was sort of a, a once in a hundred year event. And yeah, I thought we would have to climb mountains to find like two of them on a rock perch. But no, there were just fields of them. And it was, uh-huh. it's quite, you know, impressive for how much there was. So that was great. Pretty special to see. Yeah. Yeah. So, Joe, you also um, have done a comedy show where you talk <laughs> a little bit about your your journey, and um, I've watched one of them, and it's it's quite a personal story. To what degree has comedy helped you in sort of processing uh, um, your mental health issues? Uh, I'm very grateful that you came to see the show when I did that in Sydney a few years ago. It was uh, a real surprise and a very made me feel really good that somebody that I knew in my corporate career wanted to come along and, and listen to me talk about falling down. And I, I was really touched that you came. And anyway, enough blowing smoke. I just, I'm just very grateful that you <laughs> chose to spend some of your time that way. Uh, comedy and storytelling has been really critical for me in terms of catharsis and connection. It sort of came about before I, um, when, you know, when I was still working in, um, in superannuation, I got to a stage where I wanted a creative outlet of my own that wasn't work, that wasn't at home, um, something that I could just do for me and, and maybe meet some more people. So I, I got into stand-up comedy, uh, entered a competition, didn't get through the first round, but had a ball and um, got some laughs rather than some rotten tomatoes thrown at me. So I became a little bit um, hooked on you know, positive feedback and laughter and it made me feel good that you can give someone you know, three seconds of joy if you're, you're making them laugh. As I, as I fell apart over that year, um, I sort of was putting together a show which I thought was going to be a, a stand-up show about the funny things about being a dad. But then as it got closer and closer to me delivering that show, the more of my personal background and story and that of my dad and me sort of just needed to come out. So I went with it and I did that for eight shows, eight nights at the Melbourne Fringe Festival in late 2016. The first three days, all the shows went went well. Uh, don't get me wrong; small groups of you know five to twenty people in a tiny room above a pub in North Melbourne, and um, it all went quite well. But I was a mess for those first three days. After each show, and the next morning, I was um, happy to to be open and to say I was lying on my couch and lounge room floor, just in a mess of tears. And at one stage, I had a, a panic attack. And rang Beyond Blue, who were amazing at, at talking me through it. But I kept going because I didn't want to give up. I didn't want to feel like a failure at something else. So I kept going and really learned over the next sort of couple of shows after that, that it was helping me. And that by talking about my dad and me and sharing some of the, the funny incidents and things that, uh, that happened between us over time uh, was a really good means of catharsis. So I... I realized the value that it was having on me. Plus it gave me the chance to see a little bit more other comedians doing what they were doing and learning from them. So it became a bit of a a creative investment um, or a a craft without sounding like a wanker. And then, so I took that show to different fringe and comedy festivals around the country and everywhere I went, there were at least a few people who were really positive about seeing a comedy show that talked about mental health and that had the person on stage talking about how dire things had been and but how hopeful they were for the future. So I realised that there was something in it and uh, kept going and I've loved it. It's been amazing. Yeah. So, so when you, you say sort of those first three shows, you struggled with that, was that just 
the emotional drain or was that more the state you were found yourself in at that time? A bit of both, to be honest. Uh, I was really vulnerable and I was letting everything hang out um, during those shows. I felt a little bit exposed and overexposed and wondered whether I was showing too much of myself and whether I would be pushing people away. Mm. And um, it was also very draining saying or sharing the same traumatic or challenging things night after night. And it was only, you know, those first three nights that it was exceptionally difficult. And after that, it became less of, it became less disclosure and more positively sharing. And so the, as it, as I was sharing it more and more, the positive catharsis uh, really overtook the negative. Yeah. So now today you're the founder of Heart and Up. Can you tell us a little bit what that is about and what, what you are doing? Love to. Uh, so Heart and Up is, yeah, the business I set up. Uh, incidentally, registered the business name on uh, what turned out to be my dad's birthday in late 2019. Didn't plan it that way. That was just the day that I got to that step on setting things up, Yeah, which was uh, quite a nice little thing to accidentally realise when it happened. Uh, and so I started off by doing mental health first aid training. And I I did it as a participant and did it also to become a facilitator and trainer in it. And a lot of what I wanted to do with HeartNut was to bring together everything I've experienced and everything I've done and sort of leverage the best components of it and be myself and take it out into the world. So the main thing that we do uh, at the moment is mental health first aid training for organisations and community groups. And uh, so what we're trying to do is to help workplaces feel more comfortable uh, and capable when it comes to supporting uh, their teams of people with life's everyday ups and downs and just being um, constructively compassionate uh, with the people that everybody works with. So that's the main thing that we're doing. In the last six months or so, I've been doing a lot of workplace presentations, mostly online, given the, the state of the world. Yeah. And just um, you know, sharing partly my story, um, some background and statistics on the prevalence of mental ill health within Australia, and in particular the financial services industry, and just sharing some positive, small, everyday steps that that we can do to try and uh, help ourselves stay on an even keel. Uh, so I'm loving what I'm doing, and it, I feel as though um, you know I don't like using the term the universe or destiny or anything like that. But I do really feel as though everything that I've done and um, experienced to this point has really prepared me well for, uh, for what I'm doing now. And I absolutely love it. I feel as though um, I've landed where, um, where I can not only make a real difference to, to people and to our community, but um, also get a lot of value and feel good about myself too. I'm, I'm loving what I do. Excellent. Well, it's very good to see that you're happy in what you're doing and uh, that uh, you're looking forward to the future with, with uh, some fun in it as well. So, Joe, thank you very much for, for, your, for telling your story and for making the time to, to talk to me. It's, uh, it's much appreciated. Oh, my absolute pleasure. Thanks for choosing to hang out with me. No worries. Thank you for listening to the i3 podcast. For more information, please visit www i3-invest.com Thank you very much.